This morning our scripture reading is Isaiah 53. It's Isaiah 53. As we look at the work of Jesus Christ in saving us from our sins, we look at one of the amazing Old Testament promises looking forward to Christ in Isaiah 53. We'll be reading the whole chapter together. Listen to the word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Let's pray for God's help as we come to his word now. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us again this morning to see so clearly your love and your grace as we see the gospel, the good news that you have sent Jesus, your very own son, to die for our sins. Lord, we pray that we would hold on tightly to that good news, and for any here who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that this would be the day of salvation. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're taking a short break from the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at a passage about Jesus' birth. Our sermon this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. That's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Listen to God's word now. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So I was thinking about this passage this week. I was reminded, um, I have received many great presents over the years, many great gifts from people I love. But I always thought that the best presents were the ones that I didn't really need. So for instance, if my parents got me pants and called it a Christmas gift, that didn't really fly because I needed pants. I was growing, I needed a new set of clothes. That didn't feel much like a gift. But it all changed if it was something I didn't need. If I got a toy, right, like a great building set, well, that was that felt so different. I thought the best gifts were the things that I wanted, not the things that I needed. That's not how God gives gifts, though. That's not how God gives gifts to us. Because the greatest gift that He has ever given to us is the one gift that we most need. He has given us Jesus Christ. To save us from our sins. Do you know this morning how much you need Jesus Christ? And do you know how great a gift God has really given us by sending his own son for us? Let's think about those questions as we look at this passage together this morning. The main idea in this passage is that God gave his son Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. God gave his son Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. So we look at this together. We'll see two points this morning. We'll see a godly beginning in verses 18 to 19, and then we'll see a godly identity in verses 20 to 25. Let's look first at a godly beginning, verses 18 to 19. It's safe to say Jesus' beginning didn't look godly from a purely human perspective, right? It looks like Mary here has committed a great sin. Here's a virgin Mary. She's betrothed. That means she's promised to marry Joseph. And she's meant to remain pure until they're actually married. And then here's the problem. She was found to be with child. Almost everyone in Nazareth would have reached the same conclusion about what would have happened. And you can imagine the shame for Mary. Uh, It's sometimes hard for us to feel that. In our culture, it's not shameful to have children out of wedlock, at least not as much as it used to be. But that was not the case in Jesus' day. You can imagine the whispers and the looks and the comments in Nazareth when Mary walked by. Mary's situation would have caused great shame. But more importantly, it was a great sin. You look in the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 29 had specific laws about situations that could have led to a pregnancy 
like Mary's. And if she was found guilty of purposefully committing adultery, she would have been stoned to death. So you can imagine there's the shame of people looking at her, but there's also the suspicion of sin. And even Joseph, the man who's going to be her husband, seems to be convinced of her sin. Verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He is just. He is compassionate. So he thinks the best of her, right? Maybe she didn't try to resist. Uh, Maybe she wasn't able to do that, right? There's a provision for that in the law. But he is going to divorce her. He's still going to go through with that. If you look a little further in the book of Deuteronomy, you can see the laws for divorce. Joseph is well within his rights to divorce Mary for being unfaithful. So if you look at the birth of Christ, from the very beginning, it looks like everything is going wrong. Here's an unmarried mother and an almost husband walking away. But the good news is that the human perspective is wrong. Because it was God and not a man who has created this new life in Mary. Specifically, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Our passage makes this very clear. Look at verse 18. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph is told the exact same thing in verse 20. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now we know that, Joseph knows that, and Mary already knew that as well. God had told Mary in the book of Luke that this would be the case. Luke chapter 1, 30 to 38. God promised Mary a son, and Mary had the obvious question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And listen to God's answer. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God doesn't explain to Mary or to Joseph or to us how this happened. We are meant to believe. In Luke, God actually gives further reasons For this belief, he points Mary to her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth has been barren her whole life, and she is very old now. And God says, look at Elizabeth. She's having a baby now. You're supposed to look and believe. So God doesn't call Mary or Joseph or us to have blind belief in this virgin birth. No, we're supposed to have belief that is founded on the almighty power of God. So what does this pregnancy and promised birth teach us about Jesus, the one who's actually going to be born? Well, first we see that we're looking at a real birth, right? The humanity of Christ is emphasized throughout this entire passage. A real baby is born. Mary went through nine months of pregnancy at a normal labor and delivery, and the baby that was born was fully human. Um, That might not come as a surprise to us, but it's worth pointing out Remember that so many of the Old Testament promises about Jesus emphasize that he would be a true son. From the very beginning, actually, Genesis 3.15, first promise about Jesus is that a son from the woman would come. Think later in the book of Isaiah, that famous prophecy in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus is a true human We also see, though, in these opening verses that this is a unique birth as well. This is the only time in human history that a child has not had a human father. In fact, we're seeing a kind of new creation here. 
helps you to think about the, the role of the Holy Spirit. Remember the Holy, the Holy Spirit at creation. When God breathed into Adam, right? He was giving him the Holy Spirit to give him life. God breathed the breath of life. We're seeing a similar thing happen here. A new creation is taking place as the Holy Spirit once again begins this life of a new man. So it is a birth. It's a unique birth, but it's also a holy birth. And it may seem obvious if we think about the work of the Holy Spirit. But I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is truly human. We've seen that. But he is without sin as well. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 14 really emphasize this. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus has shared in our flesh and blood. He's taken our nature. And yet he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Jesus knew no sin. These passages are saying similar things. Jesus is perfect. He's sinless. And this is only possible because of the work of Holy Spirit from his conception onward. The fact that he's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit means that he is kept from the original sin that all of us have inherited from Adam. And he is also preserved from all the actual sins that flow from that as well. So as we look at the godly beginning of Jesus, we see that this is the work of God in every respect. It's according to his plan, and it's according to his power. But who is this Jesus? Why is he so special? That leads us to our second point as we look at a godly identity in verses 20 to 25. Who Jesus is and what Jesus will do appears throughout the entire passage, but especially toward the end. Let's look at a few of the things that Jesus is going to do. Our passage opens with these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this one. I want you to notice the name that is given to Jesus there. It is Jesus Christ. Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one. We see him all through the Old Testament. He is the promised one, the promised one who will rule, the promised one who will lead his people to do a special work for God and to save his people. So already from the beginning of the passage, we're looking at this promised son knowing that he's fulfilling the Old Testament. And there's one other Old Testament reminder when the angel begins to speak to Joseph. I don't know if you noticed this. The angel calls him Joseph, son of David. That's not Joseph's dad's name. Normally, Joseph would be Joseph, son of Jacob. You can see the genealogy just a few verses earlier in verse 16. Well, God is doing this for a reason. He's reminding Joseph about the promises of the Old Testament. He is reminding him of the promise that he made to his ancestor David in 2 Samuel 7. God promised that he would give David a son whose kingdom would last forever. And God now is already catching Joseph's attention to say that something extraordinary is happening because that promise from way back then is coming true now in this coming baby. Again, if you look in Luke, you see that this is made clearer to Mary, that this baby is the promised eternal king. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
So Jesus is shown to be the promised Messiah and the eternal King. Now, verses 21 on make his identity and work even clearer. First, we see he's the Savior. This is what the angel says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, we, we may have many plans for our kids as we watch them grow up. We say we want them, we want them to be whatever they want to be, but we usually have an idea of what we want them to be. We're trying to look at their gifts and you know, graces and things like that. It's interesting, Joseph doesn't get to choose the name of his son, and he doesn't get to choose the work of his son. God has already chosen what this child will be and will do. God tells Joseph exactly what Jesus will do. And it is so much bigger than what any other person in history has ever done. He will save his people from their sins. And that's why he's named Jesus. In the Bible, a name often tells you about what the person is like or what the person will do. Jesus means the Lord saves. Look in the Old Testament, it's the, the name Joshua. But when Jesus is named this, the Lord saves, this is not just like a statement of truth. Like, it's good, the Lord saves. No, he is named Jesus the Lord saves because the Lord will save through him. We now realize that the Lord's plan of saving his people is going to be accomplished in this baby born to Mary. But what does it mean? What is Jesus exactly going to do when he saves his people? Saving means there's a problem. And we see what that problem is here right in the passage. It's sins. We need to be saved from our sins. The Bible is so clear in so many places. We are all sinners. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's not just what we do. That's a temptation. We look at what we do and we say, well, those are our sins. It's actually deeper than that. We are sinners. It is in our very nature. It's who we are. Look at a place like Psalm 51. David confesses, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The Bible teaches again and again, what we do flows from who we are. See this in the teaching of Jesus. He uses the example of trees. He said, a bad tree produces bad fruit. Your sins flow from your sinful nature. That's not popular in today's world. There's many other reasons or explanations. Well, it's society that shaped me or it's my parents, all these other external things. The Bible says, no, we are the problem. And if you don't believe me that you're a sinner, then take a long look at God's law and see how you measure up because God's law condemns each one of us. Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments. In each one of those commandments, God is demanding perfect, personal, perpetual command obedience to this commandment, each one of them, and each commandment is infinitely deep because it reflects the infinite character of God. When God says, do not murder, this is not some superficial thing that you can skate by by not killing someone. No, you need to actually look at your anger. Your anger is murder. Jesus says that. Or are you actually loving your neighbor? That's the flip side of the commandment. Are you actually keeping God's law? None of us can say that. 
All of us have broken God's law. We know that to be true. We break it when we do what's wrong, and we break it by not fully doing what is right. And the Bible is clear. God is clear. What is the penalty for our sin? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Each one of us, all of us here are under the guilt and curse of God. And that means we desperately need saving. And that is exactly what Jesus does. He died on the cross to take the penalty and the curse of God that we deserve. He took the wrath of God. It was poured out on him. He experienced the pains of hell that we deserve. He did all of that for us in his death. But he also lived. He also lived for us. And his life saves us as well. Because his obedience is now counted as ours. All of his righteousness, his perfect fulfillment of God's law, is now counted as your perfect fulfillment of God's law. That is the beauty and the amazing fact of God's salvation in Jesus. But who is that salvation for? We see it again in our passage. God's promise is that he will save his people from their sins. Now we know when Jesus came that the people he came to, the Jews, so many of them rejected him. His own people did not listen to him. So who does Jesus save? It's the people that God has chosen and he has given to the Son to save. We see this again in the book of John, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be saved. I know that offends many people, but that is the clear teaching of Scripture. That is what God says. But what God also says, and I want you to hear this clearly, is that the offer of salvation is truly made to all. And the point is that you will be saved if you call on the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone is the Savior that we all need. Now this Savior and this promised salvation, this has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And even the details of Jesus' birth have been prophesied. That's what Matthew points us to next in verses 22 to 21. He has this editorial comment. All this took place, right? all this virgin conception and birth, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's thinking about the prophet Isaiah. The virgin birth was prophesied about by Isaiah almost 700 years before Jesus was born. I want you to cast your mind back 700 years. That was about 1300. Does anyone know what was happening in 1300? Not many, right? You're thinking about knights and castles. That's how long ago it would have been when this prophecy was made. This prophecy about the virgin birth comes at a very bad time in Judah's history. King Ahaz, their king, has rejected God and he's turning to Assyria for help. And God promises judgment. He says, you've rejected me and I'm going to reject you. But even as he announces judgment on Ahaz and on unbelief, he also gives this amazing prophecy of deliverance. That a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. What seems impossible will be done. 
That's what we've already seen in the pregnancy of Mary, that this unmarried virgin mother is with child by the Holy Spirit. But this prophecy teaches us so much more than just the power of God, because it teaches us that Jesus is God. The last part of the prophecy is extraordinary. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a prophecy about Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, right? He is not just a holy human savior. If Jesus were only human, then we would still be in our sins. We can't be saved by him. But he is God. He is God himself, the eternal son of God, who willingly took on our nature and then came to live with us. 1 Timothy 3.16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Or that famous passage in the book of Philippians. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is what it means for God to be with us. God comes to us and he serves us. Saw it in Isaiah 53. We see it in Philippians 2. God comes to serve and to save. God's presence with his people has been the great hope of the entire Old Testament. God would be with his people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God was present with his people. Think about his friendship with Abraham. Or how he dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. That was good. That was great. But God has always promised more. And in Jesus we see this. We see the whole new, deeper experience of God's presence with his people. God is fully present with his people in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, again, takes our nature. Which means that God himself lives with his people. And he permanently does this. Even now in heaven, think about this, even now in heaven, Jesus still has a true body and a reasonable soul. He has our nature right now in heaven. He hasn't left us and abandoned us like that. No, he's joined to a human nature. And he is now present with us. Not physically, we can't see him now, but he is present with us by his Holy Spirit. He is God with us. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus join himself to our human nature? He does this to be our mediator. Jesus is both God and man. In his person, both are brought together, which means that he alone can reconcile us to God. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That reconciliation, that salvation, is only possible because God has come to us. We cannot be saved by trying our hardest to work our way back to God. Our sin permanently, completely separates us from a holy God. But that's the amazing grace of God, that he comes to us to bring us back to himself.
That is one that's been promised in this passage, and we see the reality in the last few verses. It seems so simple. God keeps his promises. Mary gives, gives birth to this son, and we know who this son is. He is a man. He is a Messiah. He is a king. He is Savior, and he is God. That is the son that we have come to expect. And we see Joseph's faithfulness as well. He obeys God's command. He names his son Jesus, and he knows that this son will save his people from their sins. What's your takeaway this morning from this passage? I think there are many. I'll point out just a few. And the first is this, trust in Jesus Christ. I read this quote from J.C. Ryle this week, and it really stuck with me. Happy is that person who trusts not merely in vague notions of God's mercy and goodness, but in Jesus. Happy is the person who trusts in Jesus. There are many people, and we know them, maybe even some of us, who believe that we are right with God, but we don't have any solid foundation for that belief. Right? What, what, what have you heard people say? Well, I'm a good person. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are not a good person. Or maybe I've heard people say, you know, God is love. So if God is love, that means he loves me. He's going to save me. Yes, that's true. He's love, but he's also holy and just as well. You cannot take part of God at a time. Any foundation like that is a foundation that is built on sand. Do not build your life on those. Is that you or someone you know? Our only foundation for knowing that we are right with God is trusting in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Can you say and really believe, I am a sinner who needs a Savior? And can you then say and really believe, Jesus has fully paid for all of my sins? This is faith. Trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation as he is freely offered in the gospel. So first, as we walk away, trust in Jesus Christ. But secondly, rely on Jesus, our Savior, and our Emmanuel. We have a Savior and God who experienced everything we experience and now reigns in power to help us. It's, it's one thing to have compassion for someone else. Maybe you've been through a similar thing and you can understand and relate and encourage that person. That's good. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is infinitely more. Because Jesus has infinite compassion and infinite power for us. He is God who is with us. Let me show you two specific ways this can help you. And there are so many more. I'm just going to list two. Jesus' compassion and power is God with us helps us to fight sin and obey God. Jesus knows how hard it is to resist temptation and to obey God. He actually knows those realities so much better than we do because he never gave in to temptation and because he obeyed God perfectly. And that is actually why Jesus has compassion on us. As we struggle with our sin and as we struggle with our obedience with God, he has compassion on us And he has power. He is able to help when we are tempted. Look at Hebrews 4 and the great comfort there. And he has promised to be with us. How? By his powerful Holy Spirit. To be present with us and to be actually 
making us holy, to give us what we need to make us who we need to be. That means that you are never alone in your fight with sin. Do not ever give up because Christ is powerfully present with you. So rely on Christ because we see Christ's compassion and power to help us to fight sin and obey God, but also rely on Christ because his compassion and power helps us in our suffering and in our grief. Uh, Some of us in our congregation here have long-term health struggles, right? We pray week by week for our brothers and sisters here, and we know what it is like to have daily pain or daily issues, even with simple things that we used to be able to do. And beyond that kind of everyday suffering, some of us have experienced significant loss this year. Uh, Those we've loved have died. We had one this past week, but we've had many others this past year. And I want to encourage us as a congregation to remember that Jesus is present with us in our suffering and in our grief. He really is able to comfort and sustain us in our difficulties. Part of the reason he's able to do that is because he experienced the same things as well. Remember Jesus in agony on the cross? That was suffering beyond what you and I will ever experience. Or remember Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He knows what it means to grieve. But even more than being present with us, as amazing as that is and that comfort that Jesus is with us, Jesus also promises that he will use our suffering and even our grief for eternal good. I don't say that lightly, but I do say that confidently. Jesus uses our suffering and he uses our grief because he is compassionate and because he is powerful, he uses those things for our eternal good. Especially as we think about our suffering and our grief, That points our eyes forward because each one of us should be looking forward to a day when our salvation will be complete. Jesus came to save us from our sins and he has brought us to faith, but our salvation is not complete until he returns again. And when he comes back, we will be with God then in an even deeper fullness in his very presence in heaven forever. And all those things like sin and suffering and grief, those will be gone forever. Listen to what it says in Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. As we celebrate Christmas then, as we celebrate the amazing gift that we have in Jesus Christ, rejoice. Rejoice already in what we have in Christ. We have salvation from our sins. We have God's presence with us. But there's so much more coming. As we celebrate Christmas... Don't just look back at Christ's first coming. Look forward to his second coming. Look forward to heaven and to eternal life. This is what God gives us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you for how great a salvation you've given us. And you've given us a great salvation because you've given us a great Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't give anyone except your very own Son to save us from our sins. And thank you that you sent your very own Son to be with us, not just to live alongside us, but to even take our nature to himself and to save us body and soul. Lord, we thank you for the comfort of his presence with us now, his powerful presence. And Lord, we pray that you would also make us look forward to when he comes back and to pray for his return. Lord, we would ask that you would bring him uh, quickly and that each one of us would be able to join you in heaven as we come to you in faith. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.